Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 76 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron, and I am thrilled you're here. We have no interview today. I am going to give you a quick chapter from my new book, Fast Draft Your Memoir, Write Your Life Story in 45 Hours. So I hope you enjoy that. Um, that was from the audiobook that I made. The audiobook is not live yet um, because it failed all the uh, ACX requirements. I'm hitting one level too high, so they um, kicked it back to me. And you know what? I thought about it really hard. I started to research how I could rejigger the levels um, to export it so that it will please them because the sound is good. Um, it's captured well. I just don't know how to export it. And I decided that I could spend 10 hours learning how to do that, or I could go on fiverr.com and hire someone to do it for me. So I found a lovely woman who is going to uh, do all the mastering and setting up of the files to send to ACX for $65. And I am super pleased with that decision because I have hit my limit of uh, learning curve. I have gone up the learning curve for audiobooks and I have fallen right off. So I would like to tell you that, that sometimes we just have to outsource things. I'm very pleased I kept this book for myself to do the audio. Um, and I'm also very pleased with this decision. So that's exciting. Uh, the book itself is doing well. It has 27 fantastic reviews. Uh, not a bad review yet. Those will come and I look forward to that. But so far the reviews are glowing and they are not all beta reviewers. They're actually people who bought the book and read it. So um, that's amazing. Whether you were a beta reviewer or whether you're somebody who's already bought it and read it, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I keep hearing the same thing, which is uh, this book is not about memoir. This book is about writing. And so I am hitting exactly what I wanted to hit. So even if you don't write memoir, you might want to consider it. Um, and maybe I'll talk you into it with a little excerpt that I'll give you today. But what else is going on? I had a a pleasant weekend. I'll say it was kind of a rough weekend. Um, I went to a writer's conference up in Grass Valley, which is a beautiful gold rush town on the way to Reno in California. And uh, it was put on by my local Romance Writers of America group. Um, it was fantastic. It was held in the Holbrook Hotel, which was this um, ghostly hotel with, you know, with all of the reported ghost sightings. I heard nothing, saw nothing, disappointingly. Um, and of course I didn't. But uh, the hotel itself was really cool. The saloon was gorgeous. The saloon looks just like the saloon in Darling Bay that I've written about. And, and it was, the whole retreat was full of lovely people who worked really hard. Um, unfortunately I wasn't there to work hard. <laughs> I don't know if that's, a, I don't think that's a bad thing. I did work, I probably put in four or five hours of work max and on some revision. And my friend Sophie, who went with me did about the same. And our friend Julie, who went with us, but didn't pay for the retreat cause she, um, needs to hermit herself away for some personal reasons. Uh, she stayed in the hotel room and finished a book. So she who did not even pay to go to the retreat actually worked. And Sophie and I just uh, flitted around town and we saw a movie. We saw three 
what's it called? Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which you should go see. Um, it is gorgeous. Francis McDormand is perfect. If you are attracted to grief and how we manage it, um, it's the best movie. I enjoyed every single second of it, every moment of it. And, uh, we were dealing with a lot of grief on this trip. We, we had some of our own emotional things going on. So there were a lot of ups and downs emotionally. Um, being together with my best friends was fantastic. We spent a third night up in Reno seeing Julie's dad and, um, drinking in the desert and one one night where I guess it was just that one night that we went into the casinos and we had probably more fun than we should have but you know it's Reno it's not Vegas it's like it's like Vegas light um so that was nice and it's nice to be home um I did lose the friend that I mentioned last week on Monday night and I am very sad about that so I'm having a hard time dealing with that not so much a hard time as I'm not, I'm not sobbing. I do kind of the other thing. I go to a very numb space. I don't feel sad about things for a very long time. That's just how I process things. Uh, that's how I process great grief is, uh, I shut it all down. I don't know if that is from my 17 years of 911 experience, or if that's why I was good at 911 for 17 years, because I have that shut off capability. Uh, it is a method of taking care of myself, and I know that and appreciate that. It's my way. It is absolutely not wrong, uh, but it is quite exhausting. So I'm trying to take care of myself. Um, I've also kind of reached an anger point this week about loss, so that's useful. I've just been pouring that into my work. So that's great. I am in the very last final revision of this got damn thriller, which you are all sick of hearing about. Uh, but my friends helped me fix a major plot problem that had been plaguing me and keeping me up at night. And I asked them this question and they gave me the answer instantly and it fixed the book. So I'm going to send that to my agent again next week. Um, so by the time we talk again, that will be off my desk. I swear to God. Uh, I have fallen back in love with the book now though, with the, with the, revisions I've made and the changes that have been incorporated, it finally feels like the book I wanted it to be or as close to what I could bring it to as I could. I'm very proud of it. I'm excited about it. Um, it feels good to be finishing that at the same time that I'm releasing the memoir book. So um, that all feels good. And I have been able to really work hard and fast on that. So that's awesome. Um, one new Patreon supporter. Thank you, Valerie Isen or Isen, I uh, really appreciate the support from you and from all of you who are supporting at patreon.com slash Rachel. It makes me feel like you appreciate what I'm doing and that it's this vote of confidence and even $1 a month actually makes a very real difference in my life. So I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. And now Instead of running my usual in-between uh, music and little jingle thing that encourages you to join my writer's email list, which you should because I love doing that thing, rachelherron.com slash write, you should join it. Um, I'm actually going to read, it's very short, the uh, from the author, um, what do you call it, the blurb for the book, Fast Draft Your Memoir, because I'm using that as my pitch today. And um, so here we go. Fast draft your memoir, write like, 
Uh, maybe I'll try to get better at that. Fast draft your memoir. Write your life story in 45 hours. This is your roadmap for completing the memoir you've dreamed about writing. Samantha Sanders at Writer's Digest said really graciously, you guys. She said, uh, Rachel Heron resonates with our audience and not just because she knows her stuff. She does or because she's hilarious. She is, but because her honesty and earnestness comes through in all her messaging. Writing memoir is daunting. You're the expert on your life, naturally, but narrating and organizing your own experiences in the best way can feel impossible. Many writers become frustrated in early drafting stages and quit after a couple of brief attempts. Learn from best-selling memoirist Rachel Heron, that's me, who teaches this class at Stanford Continuing Studies, how to fast draft your memoir while keeping its structure compelling. Learn how to frame your life's story and give it a natural arc to keep your reader glued to the page. Figure out how to handle those family and friends you're writing about. Explore what truth means in memoir. Work quickly to quiet the inner critic. Most of all, learn how to get out of your own way to get the words on the page. You can do this. I'll show you how. And um, just reading that out loud was actually kind of fun. And I love this book. Uh, and it reminds me that I am not a natural extemporaneous speaker. Uh, when I was reading my book, I for the audiobook, I really enjoyed the way my words sounded and the way my voice held the sentences together and presented them clearly. I know that I can speak clearly. That was also part of 911, 17 years of speaking as clearly as possible. Uh, but when I just talk to you guys on the podcast, there are so many times that I don't finish a sentence and don't finish a thought. And the fact that y'all don't mind and actually kind of seem to like that and tell me about that makes me feel good. Uh, but maybe I should read some things off the page more often. Um, but anyway, let's jump into this little chapter that you've got here. I hope that your writing is going really well. Um, please come over to the Facebook group, Onward Writers, if you'd like to tell us about what you're writing. It's a great group over there. And happy writing to you. I hope you get some done right after you listen to this. How about get a few words in? Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Chapter 2. What is memoir anyway? Memoir is a fancy word for a story about yourself. It sounds highfalutin, doesn't it? Well, yes, it's French. I'm writing a memoir. Now, I'm the kind of person who doesn't speak any French at all, so I agree. Memoir does sound showy, especially when posted next to the very dry word autobiography. Want to know the simple difference between memoir and autobiography? Autobiography is the story of your life. Technically, you should only be able to have one of these. This rule has been pushed around a little bit, but we won't worry about it. People with two autobiographies are greedy, and we don't want them at our hot tub party because they don't respect the definition of things and would probably break a glass on the deck. Autobiography is written by you at or near the end of what you think your best years might be. If you're 103 and reading this book, number one, congratulations. I hope you're one of those who drank a fifth of whiskey and smoked yourself into old age people. Number two, I hope to convince even you, my leathery old friend, into believing that you'll still be better served by writing a memoir. An autobiography is a chronological story of where you were born, how you grew up, how you changed, and where you landed at the end. As Quentin Crisp said, Autobiography is an obituary in serial form with the last installment missing. And this can be a very fine story. 
It's possible that you're a very important person and that people will be fascinated to learn that your mother used safety pins on your cloth diapers. It's possible the more you tell us about every single class you took at Harvard, the more interested we will be. But let's think about this objectively. Imagine you're attending the wedding of a friend. For some reason, you've been placed at the table with all the other people who came alone and you don't know a single person. On your left is a man. On your right is a woman. You say, Hello, I'm an introvert. Being alone at a party is my very special version of hell. Can you please tell me about yourselves to make me feel like I don't need to slit my wrists on the ice sculpture of the lovely couple swing dancing? The man says, Well, yes, I was born on a dark, rainy day in Kansas. My first memory is of the dry kibble in the cat food bowl. I assume that's because I was crawling on the kitchen floor. The next thing I remember is pulling myself to standing at the back of the couch. You start to blink wildly. Maybe if you do it hard enough, the woman on your right will notice your distress and step in to help. And she does. She waits politely until the man has to draw a deep breath to continue his soliloquy on how lovely his second day of kindergarten was, and then she says, When I was twenty, I hopped on a cargo ship to Majorca. Took five months to get there. And when I arrived, I was brokenhearted, penniless, and pregnant. Toward which person are you going to shift your wine glass? Sorry, guy, I want to hear her story about the ne'er-do-well who knocked her up and left her in a foreign land. That's a story. It's not the story of a life. It's a piece of it. A memoir is the story of a specific slice of time in one's life or the story or stories on a specific theme in one's life. The Theme-Based Memoir my first memoir is called A Life in Stitches, Chronicle 2011. As I said before, the book is collected essays about what was happening in my life as seen through the sweaters I was knitting at the time. This is a thematically organized memoir. I was able to jump around in time because each chapter tied back into my knitting life. The idea came to me after my agent asked me, well, if not a pattern book, what could we give them? I was in my home office, which is also the storage room for my yarn and sweaters. I shifted a cat off my lap and swung around in my knockoff Herman Miller chair. I eyeballed the walls of the office, searching for inspiration. My gaze landed on the middle bookcase, which was full, not of books, those are elsewhere in the room, but of sweaters. Piles of sweaters, gobs of them, along with myriad scarves and shawls and hats stacked high in the ubiquitous Ikea Billy bookcase. Faced with a storage crisis of growing proportions, I'd taken the sweaters out of the closet and put them where I could see them and remember to wear them. I realized they told a story. My story. I started at the top, looking at the green and white sweater I'd made when my mother was dying. As I'd knitted it at her bedside, a direct copy of a sweater she'd had made for herself in Norway in the 1960s, I recreated the arms that held me as a child. The sweater below that was the one I'd made when I was secretly engaged to my now wife. We'd only been together for six months, and we knew everyone would laugh and make U-Haul jokes if we said we were getting married, so we kept it secret for a few months longer. But I wore that sweater all the time, and every time I looked down at the hearts encircling the left wrist, I felt warmed, even though I'd made it out of cheap acrylic. My sweaters, seen together, told a story about me. Some of the chapters in the finished collection include 
trying and failing to knit my wedding dress, the boyfriend curse sweater, and the blanket I made when I was at my poorest while living in a hovel that shouldn't have housed pigeons. The sweaters, written about individually, gave a backdrop for my chapters. They were the background music. Honestly, it almost doesn't matter what framing device you use in telling your story, as long as there is one. In To Show and to Tell, Philip Lopate says about his essay collection on the New York waterfront, quote, A confession. I was never obsessed with the waterfront. It offered a pretext and a structure for me to follow out my interests in a dozen different directions. This formula of curiosity-driven research plus personal voice is one of the most prevalent modes in today's successful nonfiction, from Rebecca Solnit to Philip Gorovich to Jonathan Rabin, from travel writing to nature writing to family chronicles to political investigations. Not obsession, but curiosity, end quote. Lopate used the waterfront to organize his thoughts. I used sweaters. Mary Carr uses her history of substance abuse in the book Lit. In a theme-based memoir, you can use just about anything. Have you been obsessed with pens your whole life? Write an essay about each one, what it meant to you, what you wrote with it. Or are you a fan of a particular sports ball team? Talk about what the games have meant to you over the years. You can jump around in time. You can leap from being married to being a kid and back to becoming a grandmother. One thing about the theme-based memoir, though, it's harder to create a narrative arc in a book that turns out to be a collection of essays. We'll talk about narrative arcs soon. An overall arc should exist in your collection, even though the essays might stand alone. It requires some extra tweaking and some judicious pruning. A theme-based memoir, because of this, has an inherent danger built into it. Your reader can walk away at any time and she might. If each essay in the book stands on its own merit, if each one is a tiny perfect story, then except for your excellent writing abilities, you have nothing else with which to draw the reader along. At the close of a strong personal essay, the reader will sigh with satisfaction. There isn't any mystery left. There are no cliffhangers in this format. With luck and good writing, your reader will turn the page because you can't wait to read what you say next. Excellent examples include the memoirs by Roxane Gay, Samantha Irby, and Jenny Lawson, to name just a few. But the risk of your reader wandering away to another book is real and present, since you have little to no suspense dragging her along behind you. The Time-Based Memoir A memoir written about a particular moment in time means that you, as the writer, can lead your reader through that time. There's a clear-cut beginning, a middle, and an end, not only in your writing, but also inherent to the time being written about itself. Some examples include Cheryl Strayed's Wild. I know you read it. We all read it, and boy, is it worth reading. The perfect example of the time-based memoir is the story of a trip with a literal starting point and stopping point, the Pacific Crest Trail. It also includes Strayed's personal journal, the interior exploration that she made while she was toting that backpack the size of a small college student. Jeanette Wall's The Glass Castle is the story of a girl's coming of age in a household of chaos, framed by her non-chaotic present. It's so iconic and brilliantly written that if you haven't read this one, just buy it already. Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love 
I don't care if you love or hate this book. It'll make an impression on you. And that's half the battle, folks. Give me a one-star or a five-star rating. As writers, we want to inspire strong emotion, even if that emotion is negative. The book is perfectly balanced. A trip to three different countries with prey slash India being sandwiched right there in the middle, a perfect act two. It's hard to not finish this book, though plenty of people report being able to. Time-based memoirs are journeys through time. They're frequently the kind of book most new memoirists want to write. My classes are chock full of students bursting at the seams to tell their big story. You may be one of these people. You may want to write about the time you sailed to Japan with your brother, the 12 years of abuse you received from your birth mother, the year you spent in Iraq, the six months you took care of your father as he died of tuberculosis, the five years you spent battling breast cancer. Oh, my students say as I tell them that writing this kind of time-based memoir is a common desire. Does that make me boring? Am I just another person with a recovery memoir? Heck no! Having an idea of what you want to write about is great. Having a single story makes things so much easier for you. The students who have the hardest time with memoir, honestly, are those who have had too interesting a life. They come in with the time they ran away from abuse, the time they married a polygamist, the time they helped their kid kick drugs, and then they have to choose. That's hard. Wait, my students say. I have to choose? Why can't I just write a memoir about my whole life? Well, that's autobiography. And trust me when I say, again, that no one wants to read the story of your whole life, not even your sweet, forbearing mother who thinks everything you do is fascinating. Please. The most fascinating person on the planet is still regularly boring. Except for Beyonce. I bet she's actually rarely boring. But it's not so bad. You'll choose a book to write much more on this in the following chapters. And when you finish the first memoir, you can feel free to write the next. Because that's the magic of memoir. A 20-year-old can write a good one just as a 70-year-old can. We can all have multiple memoirs with different themes and time frames. Writing memoir is addictive. It's hard to stop at just one. Exercise. We're going to dive more deeply into what kinds of memoir exist, but ask your gut right now. Which direction are you leaning? Will you write about a slice of time or about a certain theme? Chapter 3. Reasons Not to Write Memoir You bought this book because you'd like to know how to write your memoir. Perhaps you even want to write it quickly. Fabulous! Welcome aboard the ship of memoir. We have all types here. But before you make yourself too comfortable on board, before you claim your sleeping berth and find out where the captain keeps the cognac, I want to talk to you about the reasons you might want to disembark before the last whistle blows. The Anger Memoir Memoir isn't for you if you're holding a grudge. I can't tell you how many people I've met through my classes who want to write the punishment book. Someone was terrible to them. They were victimized. They were done wrong. With this memoir, they'll set the record straight. It's the equivalent of swinging through the saloon doors with a chip on your shoulder and a gun in your hand. It doesn't end well for anybody. But I was really done wrong. I barely survived, and I hate the people who hurt me. I bet that's absolutely true, and seriously, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I wish it hadn't. 
but you've got problems in Memorlandia. First, the reader won't believe you. Second, it's annoying. You won't keep a reader reading, your biggest job as a writer, if you're busy being angry at someone else. When people whine about how sorely they were treated, we wonder what they did to deserve it. Isn't that awful? We shouldn't be that way. It's a moral failing. But it's human nature. And please let me be clear. Horrible things happen to good people. Things that are worthy of true, deep anger. These things can and should be written about. But you cannot punish others with your writing. You can't get even by writing a memoir. You won't be able to reap revenge. Trust me, the person you want most to read your writing, the person you want to stick it to, won't read it. They're often dead. And even if they did read it, they wouldn't change or ever see your side of it. You can only help heal yourself with your writing. Please feel free to do that. Honestly, paying for good therapy will help you way more than struggling to write an anger memoir, and it'll be cheaper in the long run if you tot up what your time is worth. As Mary Carr says in The Art of Memoir, your psychic health should matter more than your literary production. The I'm So Awesome Memoir Are you? Are you so awesome that everyone will want to read every bit of your awesome life? Nah, you're not. No one is that great, and no one should try to be, especially not on the page. To be brutally honest, looking fantastic in memoir is an idea that usually comes to me from straight white male doctors and ex-military men of a certain age. I bet if you're not one of those, you're not in much danger of wanting to write this kind of memoir. If you do, however, want to write about how well you did in battle, or how many lives you've saved over the years with your research and your bare hands, pull back a moment and think about it from another angle. Perfect people aren't interesting. Luckily, you're not perfect. Even if everyone else in the world thinks you are, you know you're not. And that right there is where you want to pan for gold. We'd love to see your awesomeness on display as long as you can also show us your flaws. For every great story about how you saved the day, we'll need at least five embarrassing stories that show you as broken in the same way your reader is. Empathy springs from sharing shameful secrets, and your reader will love you for displaying the real you to her. The I'm So Sad Memoir This one comes in many flavors. The memoir might be about divorce, loss of a child, loss of health, or loss of self. Before you pledge to write this, do a gut check. Can you talk to the barista at Pete's about this particular sadness without bursting into loud public tears? When you think about writing it, do you give yourself a grief migraine? Do panic attacks come on the heels of telling your best friend about the idea? You're too close to it, my friend. You won't be able to write about this grief until you can step back and watch yourself in both the past and present tense. Our job as memoirists is to be able to not only report what happened, but what it meant. It's a balance of showing and telling. If your heart is so fragile that it requires constant care, and after great grief it will, you're simply not in the place you need to be for you to write this now. Take heart, though. You will be, eventually. We do heal from grief, though we live our lives with that limp of the soul forever after. 
In his memoir, Levels of Life, Julian Barnes writes about the death of his wife. Nature is so exact, it hurts exactly as much as it is worth. So in a way, one relishes the pain, I think. If it didn't matter, it wouldn't matter. If you're lost in a vortex of grief, that's because what you loved was worthy. When the sea of tears inside you becomes a creek and then a summer trickle, you'll be ready to write your grief memoir. But not until you can talk about the idea without always crying. Some crying is okay. It's expected. But be honest with yourself. Trust your gut as to whether you're in the right place to be objective about your journey. The I Have a Terrible Memory Memoir This is a trick. I put it in here because you don't have to worry about this. If you have a terrible memory, you can still write a great memoir. Memories are formed in both the amygdala and the hippocampal cortex. They make up two independent memory systems, but they act together when emotion meets memory. Even more simply stated, when you experience strong emotion, memories are strongly formed and are easier to recall later. These heightened intensity memories tend to be more solid, real, and granular. This is why after a car crash, we remember the song that was on the radio, the way the dashboard looked when it cracked, and exactly what the other car sounded like as its bumper crumpled. As emotion goes up, so does the brain's ability to write memories to long-term storage. So you may not remember a single thing about the ages 6 to 14, except for when your mother said she couldn't forgive you for your brother's broken arm. You might not even remember how he broke it. But you remember the look on your mother's face as she told you you weren't her favorite and never had been. That moment is crystalline because it went along with great emotional pain. And if you have a few of those, you can find more. And if you don't remember things perfectly, that's okay. We have things we can do about that. But take heart, my forgetful Dory. You can still write your memoir. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends.